from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. Have you ever met someone you really didn't know much about and then found yourself blown away by their story and inspired to be better yourself? For those out there who have met me, I know the answer is yes. Actually, you may not know this, but the Salt and Peppa song, What a Man, was actually based on me. Especially the line, my man is smooth like Barry and his voice got bass, a body like Arnold with a Denzel face. I mean, I really do have a body like Arnold. But I'm digressing. This isn't actually about me. My guest this week really is one of the most inspirational people I have spoken to this season. Sorry, Brother Ben. Andrea Hayes is the Bia Thomason Doxy Sanford Doxy Distinguished Professor and Chief of the Division of General Pediatric Surgery at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. And she's the Surgeon-in-Chief at the North Carolina Children's Hospital. She went to medical school at Dartmouth and did her residency at UC Davis East Bay. She then did fellowships in Peds Surgical Oncology at St. Jude's in Memphis, Tennessee, a Melanoma and Sarcoma Fellowship at MD Anderson in Houston, and a Pediatric Surgery Fellowship at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. She was the first person to perform pediatric HIPEC surgery for sarcomatosis, where she spends hours debulking tumors from the abdomens of these children and then instills heated chemotherapy throughout the abdominal cavity. She has devoted herself to optimizing this surgery for sarcoma and other cancers in children and has developed a basic science laboratory with animal models for these diseases to truly translate laboratory findings to the bedside. This procedure truly has offered hope to families with sick children, and Andrea consults with surgeons around the world who are adopting this into their practices. On top of that, she was the first African-American female pediatric surgeon board certified in the United States. I truly enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Hayes, and I hope you are as impressed with her accomplishments, outlook, and commitment to her patients as I was. This episode beautifully highlights the importance of persistence, self-belief, intense training, and mentorship. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Andrea Hayes, welcome to the set. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so glad to have you here, and it's it's such a treat to actually have you in the same room. We've been doing so many virtual recordings, so this is a pleasure. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm appreciative as well. Trying to do it in person is a lot better, a lot easier. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to start by talking about where you grew up, uh, what kind of kid you were, and then talking about the things in your life that led you to want to be a doctor. I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm the oldest of three children. My parents were both teachers, so my mother was a school principal and my father was a counselor for a city college. And 
We lived in a neighborhood called View Park that is uh, in Los Angeles, which is coincidentally also the neighborhood where several of the entertainers and and things Mm. lived. Kareem lived there and some other of the entertainers lived there as well. And so it was uh, a very nice neighborhood to grow up in. I went to the local elementary school. Uh, My mother says when I could talk, I, I was talking at about 18 months and at about two or three years old, someone asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I wanted to be a baby doctor. Oh, really? And so she didn't really know where that came from because there's no doctors in our family. Everyone was teachers. My grandmother was a teacher, my grandfather, all my family were teachers. Uh-huh. My grandfather was a math professor, my grandmother was a special ed teacher. So I feel like God sort of put that in mm-hmm. me at the time and just said, This is what you're going to do. And so here Did I you am have like a, doctor. was your pediatrician someone you had a connection with? Or um, you really know, I don't even remember my pediatrician's name. Oh, I, just, uh, I think it was just, uh, and, and usually they say that most people go to medical school, they want to be a pediatrician because that's the only doctor they've ever seen. Right, right. Um, but in my case, I'm not sure that was the reason. That's really interesting. I do remember my own childhood, Dr. Wilson, this very warm man who was my doctor. And mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah, so it just yeah. came out of the blue kind of. Yeah, it just did. And at one point in middle school, you know, at some point they have you write down, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you write yeah. your little story about what you want to be. And at that point, and I was in seventh grade, I said I want to be a bilingual baby doctor. Mm. So when I was in college, I took some Spanish classes and actually lived in Spain for about four months. And so at one point I was bilingual. I'm not bilingual anymore, but I was mm. bilingual. And at least I'm able to communicate what I call medical English, yeah. <laughs> medical Spanish oh, you, so <laughs> with you f- the patients. Fulfilled those dreams. Did you always maintain wanting to be a doctor throughout the whole period or did you veer in yeah. different directions? Yeah, I did. I think... You know, when you're a trainee, that's the time when I think it's pretty difficult. You know, medical school is, I enjoy medical school because I enjoyed learning everything mm. that, that was being taught. When you get to residency and you have responsibility for patients and things don't always go right, you know, I've had some times where you start saying, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But there, I could never think of anything else I wanted to do. And so I just stuck with it. There's a lot of things that happen when you're taking care of patients that make you say, oh, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. Yes. I mean, I remember one day walking through the hall and we had this not an optimal patient outcome and the janitor was cleaning up and I said, now that looks like a <laughs> good job. Yes. <laughs> no, no one bothers you. You come in, you do your work, you go home. <laughs> you I, 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 every weekend off. <laughs> I love that you said that because I, for me, it was always like, I'd like to work in a Starbucks because yeah. I enjoy the morning coffee and you right. make people so happy. Right, right. And you think that must be really nice. Right. Peaceful, peaceful, right? <laughs> On the other hand, if you screw up someone's coffee, that's probably <laughs> pretty Not, bad. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> no, I think we probably all have those feelings if it were if we're insightful about like the things we're doing. Mm-hmm. Let me so where did you go to college? I went to undergraduate at Dartmouth. At Dartmouth. And I stayed there for medical school. Oh, okay. So So I, that's a big travel uh, from yeah. L. About as far as you can go. About as far as you can go. Well, when I was in LA, I'm not really sort of the typical LA personality. So I actually went to Beverly Hills High School. Oh, really? Which. That sounds um, like a TV show a little bit. Yeah, everybody says, oh, you were really in 90210. Right, exactly. I lived it every day. Right, I grew up with that show. So I. I did, so you know, yeah, you're familiar. Yeah. Um, It wasn't quite like the show, but it was Mm -hmm. a little bit of a pseudo world Uh where many of my classmates. 
if their parents weren't stars, their parents were writers uh, and the Tonys, the Emmys and the Grammys, people just didn't come to school around those days. Uh, uh, those were sort of unofficial holidays. It was really, uh, you know, sort of like this Peter Pan type of world. And I wasn't real, that wasn't for me. You know, I was the nerd and the yeah. AP classes. And so I sort of wanted to get out of LA after yeah. that experience. And I didn't live in Beverly Hills, so I was bused there in uh-huh. a special program. We had to apply. I had to apply like it was a college. Interesting. And so they took a certain number of minorities based on your test scores, etc. So I had great education, but I had no interest in staying in LA. So, so you were bused there. Was there were people accepting? Did you feel out of place? What was that like? Yeah. There must have been a lot of really rich people. In yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was. I think a lot of the teachers were a little bit resentful. You know, I had also been bused to a middle school that fed into Beverly Hills High School and that I remember that was my first introduction to a bagel had never seen a bagel before. <laughs> Interesting. And so... And As someone who grew up in the New York, New Jersey area, I'm like, <laughs> like how does horrified. How do you not know a bagel? How do you get to 13 years old without seeing a bagel? <laughs> right. But it was different because I it wasn't as supportive. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was in, in my elementary school. The entire elementary school is African-American. Mm-hmm. All the teachers, all the students, everyone. And everyone came from doctors, teachers, lawyers, parents. So we're a fairly middle-class to affluent neighborhood. And I I remember there being one Caucasian child in the entire school. And so you grow up in this environment from grade one through six, where it's extremely supportive. You don't know it when you're a kid, but I had a lot of self-confidence about, you know, the fact that I was getting higher test scores than everyone else. And and they wanted me to go from, I skipped kindergarten. They wanted me to go from preschool to second grade because I was reading at a second grade level. Mm-hmm. But my mom said that's too much maturity. You know, two years of social maturity is too much. So she just said, well, she can just skip kindergarten, go to first One grade. Year. So then I get to middle school and I'm the only African-American in the class in whatever pre-AP, pre-algebra. And all of a sudden, I'm being told that I'm not smart enough and I'm not good enough. Mm. And that, that was unusual for me because I was, it was, just wasn't used to it. And my mother had to actually fight to get me in the advanced classes. I said, oh, she won't be able to handle it. She said, no, she'll, she'll be fine if you put her in mm. pre-algebra or algebra. And so then going to high school, I found out later, because I didn't know this while I was there, that the, my mother was trying to get me to meet with the high school counselor and about, going, about colleges to choose. And the counselor said, well, you know, she can, if she goes to a state school in LA, that will be fine. And my mother said, no, I, you know, I wow. think she could go to an Ivy League school if she wanted to, you know, maybe you could, ah, no, I don't think she's going to be ready for that. So basically I didn't have any high school counseling because my mother wouldn't let me go back to that counselor because they weren't going to be supportive. So it was, I had a lot of interesting experiences there because I think what happens to a lot of underrepresented minorities is that over time you lose this self-confidence that you were that was sort of in you mm-hmm. and you sort of think well maybe I'm not as smart maybe I don't know as much after people keep telling you over and over and over and over that you're not smart enough absolutely and, I would think that'd be a pretty normal reaction yeah, to, for any of us especially someone growing up yeah and it's it sort of stays with you mm-hmm. you know I'll tell you a quick story when I was in high school um, I was in AP chemistry and um, had a really close friend 
who was a Caucasian female, and she and I were in all of the AP classes together. And in AP chemistry, what we did was they start with the unknown. I don't know if you remember doing that in chemistry. And then they ask you to go through the steps yeah. to figure out what it is. Yes, I do. So your whole grade was if you got your unknown correct. And so at the end of the semester, you write on the index card your name on one side and what your unknown was on the other side. And so I had written it down and she said to me, let me see what you have. And I showed her, she's like, oh, no, that's not right. That's not what I have. And I was like, you know, I spent the whole semester doing these experiments and I was sort of shocked. And the professor was coming up the aisle to collect these index cards. And she said, you got to change it because it's not right. You know, oh my gosh. And instead of me thinking, well, no, I think I'm pretty got this right. I was like, OK, she's right. And I got it wrong. So I changed you it at the last it. minute and I crossed it out. And so the teacher saw that I was doing that, but she initially like failed me because I got the wrong one. And then right. she said, I see you crossed it out. You know, is this really what you meant? But, you know, that kind of experience just throws you. And I think it also spills over into standardized exams when they say, oh, some African-Americans don't do as well in standardized exams. But you're looking at the multiple choice and you're thinking, well, I think that's the answer. But if I think that's the answer, that must not be the answer because I know that answer. So I must be wrong. Wow. And then you change your answer because you don't have the self-confidence that you have yeah, in right. knowledge. So that's a great story. I mean, for lots of reasons, I mean, maybe it was a great learning event for you. I can really relate to it because I remember tests like that. Mm -hmm. We all have self-doubt. So then if you add on this other layer where people are making assumptions or people are telling you you don't know as well as... Mm -hmm. It's really easy to get led in the wrong direction, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Did you feel extra pressure being an African-American student in this setting, or did you just kind of go about your days? And um, I don't think I felt the extra pressure. It becomes in, sort of invisible. Mm. You know, you, you just sort of deal with it. And not just the pressures at school, but... You know, as you get older, you understand more of what the environment around you is like. You walk into a Walgreens or whatever store, not picking on Walgreens, but um, you walk into any store and there's somebody following you or watching you, see if you're going to steal mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. And that becomes something that you just, you know, I don't see it anymore, you know, because I'm, I'm just used to it. You're used to it, right. Um, the only time I recognized it, fully was when I moved to Canada for two years and that didn't exist. Mm. And I said to myself, why do I feel different? You know, this is, this is weird, you know, I'd, and it was because they're, Canada is really an incredible country and in that it's not so much a melting pot. They have all these different cultures and everybody maintains their culture and their neighborhoods, but they're not separatists. So, you know, they're fine if you go into the Portuguese neighborhood, mm. but the Portuguese grandma wants to speak Portuguese in the grocery store. So all the stores, they speak Portuguese and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a separated environment as far as ethnicity, but they're all very welcoming. And interesting. there's no overlay of racism or very little, if any. That's interesting. I I know that you went to high school some years back. I won't necessarily date yes. you on it, but <laughs> yes. do you think it's probably the same in, in Beverly Hills now as it was then? It's probably a little different. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's, I think it's probably better because more students have sort of this. I think I was in the first class that they tried this sort of, experiment if you will mm. this was in the 70s you know when they mm -hmm. first started all the busing and everything and i think now it's it's more you know expected and also there's a lot more my parents couldn't afford to send me to private school but mm. there's a lot more um, minorities in la that can afford to send their kids to private school so i think it's better 
at least people are talking more about these things. We certainly have a long way to go. Yeah. That's yeah. for sure. Well, let's move on to Dartmouth then. So that must have been a little bit of a culture shock, both in terms of weather and yes. the kind of people that yeah. were there. What was that experience like? Well, Dartmouth is a wonderful place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. It's mm-hmm. freezing cold. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I was prepared. My parents had brought me all kind of clothes that I never would wear in LA mm-hmm. to, that have to wear at the in the frozen tundra. It was interesting because Dartmouth, the other African-Americans at Dartmouth had the same, if not identical experience that I did in, in mm-hmm. high school. So we were all, you know, the best of the best in our class. But none of us were really comfortable with other black people. I know that sounds weird, but Mm. we had all gone to predominantly Caucasian schools. Most of us had gone to private schools, except for me. I was one of the few that hadn't gone to a private school. And so just the nature of who they selected, it made us more close as a community within Dartmouth. Dartmouth has about 4,500 students and about 200 to 250 were African-American. So it was a small percentage But, you know, those are still my best friends today. And Mm -hmm. even though we were very integrated in our classes and everything, our social events, we all did together. But I remember the first time I met that whole room full of African-Americans, I went, oh, my God, there's like a lot of, you know, just because I was uncomfortable. I had never been in a room with that many Mm -hmm. African-Americans in the room, you know, before. And so a lot of us went to African-American churches, but in school, we never experienced that. That's really interesting. So you were separated in school then. Yeah. Mm. So, but it was great. I mean, it was what I call a love-hate relationship. (laughs) Um, You know, that was my first, Dartmouth was my first experience with overt racism. Mm. Um, I had never experienced that before. It was during the time when, if you remember, apartheid was at its peak in South Mm -hmm. Africa and the tension in the United States was on companies and schools who had invested in the apartheid regimen and invested in South right. Africa. And so we were asking Dartmouth to divest from South Africa because of apartheid. So there's all these protests on campus, like students do lots of protests. And we had a sit-in actually in the dean's office. So the African-Americans at Dartmouth organized this non-violent sit-in where at seven o'clock in the morning when the doors of the dean's office opened in the president's office, we had some come from the front door, some come from the back door, and we just walked up the stairs. There's no security at the time, and walked right into the president's office and just sat on the floor. And we filled the hallways and the stairways, mm. and we said, "We're not leaving until you divest from South Africa." And so this lasted for the whole day. We did this sit-in, and it made the national news. Of course, they didn't divest that that day, mm. but it did start the conversation. And over the next couple of years, they did divest from their investments in South Africa. But that protest highlighted racism. And so on campus, there was a lot of unhappiness and and the dorm there, someone had taken toothpaste. You know how you have the, everybody shares the same bathroom at the end of the dorm. Right. It used to be that way. Someone had wrote the N-word and toothpaste on the mirror and said, you know, that word, go home. Mm. And so that was my first, like, wow, this is like weird. Like, what's happening? I remember calling my mother saying, you didn't tell me, like, mm. this this whole racism thing existed. Like, uh, what am, how am I supposed to manage this? And it was real eye-opening. We had a lot of dorm conversations that were facilitated by professors. And I remember one student um, who was from Kentucky, really nice guy. He was from a rural part of Kentucky. And he said, I don't understand 
how you can expect me to socialize with you when I've never seen a black person in mm. my life. Like I've only seen them on TV. And I said, well, it's not a them. Like, you know, I'm right. a human. <laughs> so, right. but for him, it was like how he didn't, he felt like he didn't know how to communicate because he hadn't, his image was only from television and mm. movies. And so it opened up a lot of good conversation with my classmates, I think engendered a lot of positive long-term relationships. That's an incredible interaction. It's great that he was able to speak about that rather than just think it, but it's yeah. also hard to, <laughs> hard to understand that, I yeah. guess. I'd say he was being honest, right. which, was, which, which is, is good. good you know, conversation's just, always yeah. good. Wow. So you, even though you were bused into a school in LA, you never felt over racism. Did, no, I don't. Uh, like my mother never told me about yeah. the counselor conversation. My mother, did, all this stuff I learned later. You learned later, yeah. You know, I didn't understand while I was moved from class to class when my mother behind the scenes was saying, you know, she needs to be right. in this class and not this class. So I didn't really get that. That's really interesting. Um, and LA, you know, like California is a very liberal Mm, place mm. so you would never encounter that in our day-to-day life right yeah. okay and tell me at um dartmouth you did you major in a science were you always still in med nope. school no <laughs> what did you i majored in religion oh wow. um because at dartmouth pre-med wasn't a major anyway mm. and so you had to choose something else and so i figured well i have to take my pre-med courses so i'll take something that i'll never have a chance to study again yes and so it was great i had a class on taoism a class on buddhism a class on judaism Awesome. couple of classes on Christianity and some African religions, and I loved it. Yeah, you know? it probably still uh, is with you today. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was fantastic. I just a plug to any that. any students out there. I was a Russian language and literature major, oh, and I had the same <laughs> thought, which was, yeah. I'll do the I'll do the pre meds on the side, but I'll be able to do that the rest of my yeah. life. Let's do something. So yeah, I, right. I think that's a great path. Also, oh, you write Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy. I mean, honestly, their books are still relevant today in a very dark, alcoholic way. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, a little bit, right. But I, I love that, and I still love to read and yeah. uh, explore these things. So it was great. I mean, I really yeah. enjoyed it. It was sort of the way to get away from the sciences. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, you pour yourself into these books and. It was wonderful. It's cool. And hopefully, you know, we'll get to like your current accomplishments and you, you're both a scientist and a surgeon and see you can do this and do other things in the mm-hmm. world and still have that career. Mm-hmm. Um, and it probably makes you more multidimensional. I know it is for me. And it's fun. Did you go straight from college to med school and where? Yeah, I stayed at Dartmouth. Dartmouth, right, you said school. that. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed being on the campus. I, I liked it because there were any city distractions and I knew mm-hmm. I needed to focus on studying to get through medical school. So I was a type of person, I'm an introvert, so I would go to the library and just sit there all day. The library was beautiful at Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful um, atmosphere aesthetically and, and obviously quiet. And so I, I really enjoyed Dartmouth Medical School. Dartmouth was a small medical school, so we did our first two years on campus and mm-hmm. then some of us went to Brown to do the second mm-hmm. two years and then some of us stayed at Dartmouth hospitals to do there and I stayed and then we did some away rotations as well because mm-hmm. we to get more experience and I really enjoyed the, the medical school there I enjoyed medical school in general why surgery what, what, what was there some people have this like <laughs> they just know they go in the hour and love it some yeah. people have a mentor what was your <laughs> well you know I when I went to medical school I still, still thought I wanted to be a pediatrician mm-hmm. So, um, I quickly, after I did my pediatrics rotations in third year, I said, this is not what I want to do. It was interesting. One of my classmates who went on to be a psychiatrist, 
we were having this discussion about what we were going to go into and how we were choosing our specialty. And she was convinced from day one, she was going to be a psychiatrist and the rest of us were having a discussion. And she said, you know, you're tall, you carry yourself like a surgeon, you mm-hmm. could be a surgeon. And I was like, a surgeon, really? And she said, yeah, I think you could be a surgeon. <laughs> and I just was like, hmm, you know, maybe I could be. And I, at the time, I was considering pediatric hemog or mm. family practice or surgery. Those are my three things. And when I was talking about it, I said, she's like, well, why do you, why do you want to do family practice and PT mock? I said, well, you can do some procedures. You, know, mm. you can do some surgery. And she's like, well, you should just be a surgeon. You don't choose a profession where you partially do surgery. Right, yeah. right. So, <laughs> that was the plan of the bug. Yeah. The, so I was yeah. like, oh, okay. And she said, you're tall. You know, I said, oh, that's a good point. So anyway, I chose to be on the service with the surgeon who had the worst reputation. Mm. So this was the bad old days of surgery where surgeons were throwing instruments across the room at nurses and it was horrible. So I basically told myself, if you can get through the rotation with him, (laughs) you're going to be okay. So you dove into the, dove into the fire. (laughs) I said, yeah, I said, okay, I'm going to get through this. And, um, One of my classmates was on the rotation with me who's gone on to be dean, and he has that sort of dean persona. Uh So we would talk every night, okay, you can do this. You're going to go in there. You're going to be, okay, we got it. We got it. And we encourage each other. And, you know, he would ask questions during the whole Mm. surgery. And I knew I was doing okay one day when he asked me a bunch of questions. He was doing a proctectomy. He was actually a surgical oncologist. And he was doing the proctectomy, and he asked me all kinds of questions about rectal cancer, and I got them all correct. And then he said, let's talk about thyroid cancer. <laughs> so I said, I must be doing okay. Yeah, right. now, we're, now we're into something I didn't read about last night. Right. So, He's like, I'll get her there. Right. That feels like taking the boards. They're yeah. going to find something that you, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that you don't know. Did you feel like he treated you well in the end? Oh, yeah. In yeah. the end, he wrote me this glowing letter mm. of recommendation. And I think his letter really got me. And he was a very prominent, and still is a very mm. prominent surgeon. And so I think that's what got me into my surgical mm. residency. So Did you like your first, do you remember your first experience in the OR? Did you like it? or? Oh, I loved it. I remember my first operative experience as mm. an intern when I was, you know, took out this little tiny, I don't know what it was. It was like a one centimeter mass. And yeah. anyway, it was, I mean, I, as a student, I like loved INDs. Like I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. The pus comes out yeah. and everything's all better. You yeah. know? <laughs> well, I still <laughs> think that's one of the most satisfying. <laughs> it's, it's like so great. If you like training an IND, you could be a surgeon. You could be right, 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 exactly. There are other people who do um, that, but. Yeah. It was interesting because there was only one female surgeon at Dartmouth at the mm. time. She was a vascular surgeon and she was actually semi-retired. Um, she had had some health issues and wasn't able to operate anymore. And so I never got to operate with a female surgeon mm. and I never really talked to her much. And so the idea of a female surgeon at that time was sort of almost unheard of. Yeah. You know, it was like, you want to be a surgeon? And this was in 1990. Mm. So the idea of a female surgeon was like, rare and very rare so were there any african-american surgeons at oh, dartmouth none. none so almost no females and no african-americans yeah. did people tell you maybe you shouldn't do this or did you not um you know interestingly at the medical school they did not discourage me there you know mm. i think i did an away rotation once and one of the surgeons there wasn't so nice to me but i think mm. it was just his personality you know i went on as a fourth year student to do a sub i you know i wanted to go to stanford for residency mm. so i did a sub i at stanford and at the time you know you're sending letters back and forth so there's no internet or whatnot and when i arrived that day the rotation was supposed to start and i had moved in with friends of my parents who lived in the area 
they said, well, you know, there's no more room for students on the chairman's service. Because, of course, I wanted to be on the team with the right, chair of surgery right. so I could impress the chair. And they said, yeah, we got too many students on that team, so you can't be on that team. And I said, you know, I came all this way just to be on that team. And you told me I was going to be on it. I said, yeah, we can't. So here's, you can either do orthopedic surgery or pediatric surgery. And I had already done an orthopedic surgery rotation. And I said, oh, I've already done that. So I'll try pediatric mm. surgery. But I was upset about it. I was not happy to do that because that wasn't my goal while I was at Stanford. Mm. And I fell in love with it the first day. Mm. I mean, I really, the two pediatric surgeons that were there at the time, the, the chief of pediatric surgery at the time was a pediatric surgical oncologist primarily. Mm -hmm. So I got exposed to all these children with cancer and all the surgeries that he was doing. And every surgery, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I mean, mm -hmm. every surgery, even the surgery I could barely see because the child's body's so small, you can't really see yeah, right. what's going on very much as a student. But it was an incredible experience. And that's where I fell in love with pediatric mm -hmm. surgery. And that was as a fourth year student. And, medical, and, that, and from sort of fast forward, from there, that particular individual who was the chief of pediatric surgery at Stanford went on to be the chair of surgery at St. Jude's Children's mm -hmm. Research Hospital. And he recruited me there to be a fellow when he moved to St. Jude. Gotcha. And so I think God just sort of pushed me in the direction that I was supposed to go. There's, you know, events that happen that some people would call serendipity, but right. I think are really part of God's plan and getting me where I was supposed to be. Right. Right. So you, I know you did your fellowship at St. Jude's. Where did you do your residency? Was it at? Um, UC Davis East Bay. UC Davis East, East Bay. Bay under mm -hmm. the direction of Dr. Claude Organ Jr., mm -hmm. who is a past president of the American College right. of Surgeons. I certainly know the name, yeah. Uh, and he was wonderful to train under African-American man. One of the very few African-American male surgeons at the time, uh, certainly to be the chair of surgery. And he trained at Creighton. And mm -hmm. at Creighton was a pyramid program. The true pyramid where you went from 10 interns to one chief resident, and he was the one chief resident that survived, which at the time wow. was unheard of, you know, for an wow. African-American to survive in Nebraska. Right. He stayed on at Creighton for a number of years and became chair there and then moved to Oakland where the UC Davis East Bay program was. Right. What a crazy system, the pyramid system. I'm glad, we, I'm glad we don't have that so anymore. I'm glad we don't have that. I don't see getting through that. But, <laughs> but I don't know. So did you, this is kind of a dumb question, but did you enjoy your, your training, your residency? Did you um, feel overwhelmed? Like what were, what, what's kind of your reflection yeah, on that? Um, I don't think it's a dumb question. I think yeah. I, I loved residency. I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, and this was the bad old days with, you know, 100 hour plus work yeah, right, weeks of course, and yeah. no, no work hour restrictions. Right. And no one's saying um, thank you. I'm getting right, 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 right. <laughs> right. And um, anyway, I enjoyed it because I enjoy surgery mm -hmm. and I enjoyed the challenge. But it also, my chair made it very, you always saw light at the end of the tunnel. He mm -hmm. was constantly communicating with me. He was very, very supportive. I mean, he was my first real mentor. And I was the, I ended up when I graduated as a chief, being the first African-American to graduate from the UC Davis East Bay program mm. and the first African-American female to graduate from the UC Davis program in general. And so he sort of saw that in me as an intern that I could, uh, he saw in me what I didn't see in myself, that I was going to be this great surgeon. And at the time, you know, as an intern, you don't really think that you are. Right. But he gave me a lot of guidance along the way that helped incredibly to navigate I'll tell you one example. He sent me to interview this lady called Huena Gauntlet. Mm -hmm. He said, I want you to go 
drive to Northern California, drive to the middle of uh, Central California and meet this young lady, a surgeon, Dr. Huena Gauntlet. And what he knew that I didn't know, he at the time was the past chair of the American Board of Surgery. And he knew from the records that she was the first board certified general surgeon in the country. So he sent me to interview her at her home and she's a wonderful lady with twins and not an academic career, but a very successful surgeon in the Kaiser system and shared her love of orchids. And we, I, I tape recorded the conversation and wrote it up. That was my first manuscript. Mm. And mm. I think he kind of knew at the time that I was going to be the first black female pediatric surgeon, but I didn't know. And he wanted me to hear her story to help mm. me navigate my career. And when I went to present that paper at the American College of Surgeons meeting, he then at the time, of course, he was the chair of surgery. So he took me to the cocktail reception for the surgical chairs, Society of Surgical Chairs mm-hmm. as an intern. <laughs> and I didn't know where I was, really. He says, come with me to this thing. To me. And uh, what are you going to say, your boss? Yes, right. yes, sir. Right. <laughs> you know? So I'm there in tow and he introduces me to every surgical chair that's there, which are the people's names I've read in the textbooks. Mm. This is when we still had textbooks. Right. And Swartz and Saviston was the Bible. And so meeting like the Schwartz and the Sabastons yeah. and the, I was like, oh my God, like, these are, you know, I was right. just so impressed. And after the reception, he said to me, I just want you to meet these people so that you can see that they have feet of clay and you can be just like them. Mm. And at the time, as an intern, when I'm just trying to navigate surgery, like I just want to get board certified. Right. Like I can't right. even think of being a chair. But looking back at that, situation i think that experience really set in my brain and he knew what he was doing he's being very intentional and exposing me to a group of men they were all men there were no women in the room not one woman they were all men in the room and all caucasian men except for him and dr lafall who was a chair of surgery at howard mm-hmm. that was just an incredible experience looking back on it what an incredible mentor and supporter to have. I wonder how different your experience might have been without him. Mm-hmm. Did you say you you were the first board-certified African-American pediatric surgeon? Yes. Period. Yeah, that- the first board-certified African-American female surgeon. Yes. I mean, that, I think about it in my own career, which is really hard to get through training, but I didn't have that piece as well. Mm-hmm. Do you, did you have a lot of barriers being both a woman and African-American? Did you, I know you had yeah. some people obviously pulling for you. Mm-hmm. How do you look at that? Did you have to fight through additional stuff? Did it feel different, normal? What do you think? I think, I think it's hard to separate being a female and an African-American. Like I, mm-hmm. However I was being treated, I didn't know why they were treating me that way. You know, I... I had some experiences which I share with other African-American surgeons and physicians where you walk into a room and even with your white coat on, they don't see you as a doctor or Mm. a surgeon. And um, I remember I had an older Caucasian woman that was going into consent for an aorta by femme. Um, an open vascular procedure, which we don't do very much anymore. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, sad in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good for uh, the patient. Yeah. The, so yeah. I was going to consider, and I was a, a third year resident at the time. So I had on a regular length white coat, and she saw me walk into the room and immediately pointed to the trash can and said, "Oh, sweetheart, the trash is mm-hmm. right over there." And I go, I'm "Not here to take the trash out. I'm here wow. to do your surgery." And I just smiled, uh, you know, through it. But that happened more than once where even dressed like a doctor, they just don't see it. Yeah. And so I have had a lot of situations where I've been invisible 
literally invisible to my colleagues where I'm walking down the hall and they won't, they don't see me. Like if I'm not wearing the white coat, they don't see me, you know, and it's, and many of us have had that experience and you just, you just sort of get used to it. What do you tell residents how to handle that when it happens to them? Um, You know, I just tell them to try to educate the patient or educate the physician who's, who's making those statements Nowadays, we talk about upstander and bystander and trying to have that sensitivity to ethnicity and race. But when it's a patient, I just tell them just to smile through it and say, you know, I'm actually the surgeon and they'll get it when you walk out the room. You don't really have to say much more than that. And if it's a if it's a surgeon or an attending, you know, you're going to be less likely to say anything because you want to keep your job as a resident. I know from talking to many residents that they do still have that experience, unfortunately, yeah. with some attendings, and they can't really share it because they want to graduate. You know, they want to get done with right. their residency. They don't want to have any backlash. And so uh, now what we're doing through the Society of Black Academic Surgeons is trying to provide help. Like you said, like you said, like, what do you tell them to do and mentorship to get through that process? Because we can't change people. Unfortunately, we can't change behavior immediately. So we have to help them navigate that process to get through their residency successfully. So we're trying to provide them an avenue to send anonymously things that happen to them to the Society of Black Academic Surgeons and our senior leadership who are well-established in our career will be able to help them navigate those situations, hopefully. Yeah, it's interesting. You have the patient piece, which is one thing. Obviously, you want to take care of the patients and they're sick and they're scared, but at the same time, things aren't appropriate. But then you have... Right. The leadership and the surgeons and we all have our implicit uh, uh, biases, of course. Do you see, I mean, you're so accomplished now. You're in leadership. Do you still encounter that like in, in leadership meetings, in rooms with? No, no. you know, now, mm-hmm. I, now I don't as much. Mm-hmm. When you're at the level, you know, I'm on several boards and several committees and editor and editor in chief, et cetera. One of the statements that Dr. Charles Drew made that I think is very, very true still today is excellence of performance will overcome any artificial barriers created by man. Mm. And so that excellence of performance is what I strive for all the time. And I just keep trying to be excellent. Mm. Uh, and, and that's a true statement. It does overcome those artificial barriers. One pe- once people see that you're excellent or that you're doing great work, that you're a great surgeon and a great manager, or a great leader, then those artificial barriers go away and they see you differently. So you've you've really gotten there by excellence and by pushing yourself and by just doing absolutely the best you can for your patients. Right. Trying to yeah. do absolutely the best for the patients and keeping the research going and right. trying to publish and stay in uh, yeah. the light so that people can see what I'm doing. I am still, it is funny because maybe I'm ignorant in some ways, but it is funny. I, you still hear so-and-so is the first African-American professor at Mm -hmm. Harvard or the Mm -hmm. first pediatric surgeon and there are people my age or younger or first resident who's African-American who came through the program. We're Mm -hmm. hearing that now. We're making progress, but we have a long way to go. Yes, Um, absolutely. There are these still firsts that you kind of go, really? Yeah, really, right? Tilt your head to the side and go, hmm, you know, but... As, as long as we're having first, I guess, is the way to think about yeah. it, right? That, that at least we're getting there, even though it might be slow. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think having first is great. And then 
you know, showing younger people that they can be the second or the third right, or, exactly. the, or the 10th. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's progress. I do want to, you gave an incredible talk today and, um, you're such an accomplished surgeon, but I'll give a, a very poor summary, but you're a pediatric surgeon, but you've really championed this incredible, uh, cytoreductive high pec surgery on kids with cancer. And these, for those that aren't surgeons, are these really long, difficult operations where it's really easy for surgeons to go in and say, oh, they were unresectable and there's nothing we could do. And everyone would agree with that. Mm-hmm. And you've gone a different route. Did you have some early case where you're like, I got to do something different? Or what, what, is, what inspired you to do that? You're exactly right. I did have a case when I was at St. Jude as a fellow, St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, which um, for folks who may not know it, the, the whole hospital, all they do is treat pediatric cancer. And it was a great place to train. And we had a patient there, a 12-year-old boy who had this rare tumor, desmoplastic small round cell tumor. And this was in 1998. And so we opened him and as surgeons say, we opened and closed him. We opened him and we saw this diffuse disease and the attending I was operating with says, oh, there's nothing we can do with this child and closed him. Which is what we would all say. Yeah. yeah, At least then. Absolutely. Yes. And, and then he sent me out to tell the parents that, you know, there's nothing to do for their 12 year old son, which was a very impactful conversation. Mm. And then I immediately went to the library, you no know, Google or internet, yeah, and right. uh, looked up this disease because when I asked the attending that I was operating with, he says, this is really rare. We don't have anything to treat it. And, you know, there's nothing we can do for this disease. And I said, well, this certainly is not why I went into surgery to tell someone, a parent, that there's nothing we can do. Right. And so when I went to the library and I had to go to the microfiche, I don't know if you remember what yeah, microfiche Yeah, I remember was. it well. <laughs> I love doing that. Actually. <laughs> you know, sliding the thing over. Yeah. Anyway, um, there was only two articles I found on this rare tumor. And I realized that, it, and this was 1998, so it had just been discovered in 1989, this particular tumor type. And mm. it was like, this article I was reading was from 1991. Anyway, I realized that there was very much, this was very much unknown, and I was sort of determined to figure out how to surgically treat this tumor. Mm. So, fast forward a little bit in my training. As part of my training at St. Jude, Dr. Shockett sent me to MD Anderson to do a mini fellowship in just melanomas and sarcomas. So, I went to Anderson, and I rotated with the other fellows, and I just did those two rotations. And there, they were doing a phase one trial at the time on HIPEC and sarcomas, And so that's how I learned the technique. And then I said, oh, wow, there are surgeons who are actually removing all these tumors Mm. and doing this hyperthermic chemotherapy. And so I started to ask those surgeons I was operating with, hey, you know, what do you think about doing this and this other disease that happens mostly in kids? And they're like, yeah, no, you know, this is dangerous, you know, put chemotherapy and it's not going to work. And, you know, several other people told me it was not going to work, pediatric surgical colleagues as well. But then I decided they're all dying. I mean, Mm. you know, the mortality was like 85%. So I said, they're all dying anyway. I mean, we got to try something, even if it doesn't work, at Mm. least make an effort to try to improve the survival. And so I was, you know, focused on got to get this phase one trial done, got to get this, you know, organized. And it took several years to do so, but over time, I was able to get back to MD Anderson Cancer Center where they were had heard of it. You have to be an environment that is supportive of children and supportive of oncology. There's very few medical environments that are like that. Mm. And I was unable to get it accomplished at a freestanding children's hospital, but in a cancer center where they go, oh yeah, well, we know HIPEC. 
We just have to put sort of these guardrails around it and make sure it's safe and we'll help you get through it. You know, when I did, I mean, I t- to this day, I remember the moment I got out of the first case and how ecstatic I was that I had actually done it, you know, after right. years of preparation. It took me about four years of writing it, trying to write the protocol, trying to get it through the IRB and all the systematic paperwork that I had to go through. We'll link to your talk, which if people want to know more about this, it it obviously took incredible persistence. These are long. Some of these surgeries are very long and complex. I think you mentioned 15 or 20 hours. Mm -hmm. And it also interested me that when you had a few complications, you stepped back and really dug in, you know, put things on hold, dug into it and tried to figure out how to make it safer. One of my heroes is Tom Starzl. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I was able to spend some time with him towards the end of his life. Mm But he also, when he started doing liver transplant, had bad outcomes. He put a moratorium and then dug into the research aggressively, Mm -hmm. figured out how to make it safer, and then went back to it and it just reminded me like both persistence but being really insightful and honest uh-huh. is is so critical yeah it's interesting you mentioned dr starzel that's the other thing dr organ did uh, dr organ recognized dr starzel's pioneering impact mm. and he had invited him to uh, to be the main speaker at a society of black academic surgeons meeting back in 1992 mm. when i was a second year resident it was in napa valley the meeting. And so he asked me to pick Dr. Starzl up from the airport. So I had a two hour ride with Dr. Starzl to talk to him about his career Mm. and all of his missteps and how he overcame them. You know, at the time, you know, I'm just trying to make conversation as a second year resident. I'm sort of this giant in my car and I'm just nervous (laughs) and, you know, oh my God, I'm in the car with Dr. Starzl, you know, but you know, that was also very intentional. Yeah. You know, obviously he could have sent a car to pick him up from the airport. It wasn't right, about it wasn't right. about the money and getting him from the airport. But the two hour drive from the San Francisco airport to Napa. Oh, that's a long way. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. a long ways. And it was a phenomenal opportunity, you know, just to yeah. chat with him. So I understand what you mean about, you know, seeing something in its pioneering stage and recognizing that it's not gonna be perfect and how you yeah. have to that reminds me of two things. When a, if you're a resident out there and your chief asks you to pick up a visiting professor, that's a good thing, not a bad <laughs> exactly, thing. I think exactly. that is a real opportunity. Actually, yeah. interestingly, Starzl, his first marriage ended in divorce, but his mm-hmm. second wife was an African-American woman who was yes. uh, in his lab. And he got a lot of sort of, uh, I don't know, criticism or hate from that in the mm-hmm. in the era that it was in. And, um, and it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Interesting and and I th- my chief knew that as well. Yeah. And so he knew I wouldn't be met with any, you know, sort right. of silence in the car or anything. Right. No, I don't so, think that would. Um, yeah, well, it's good. So that's really fascinating. I could talk to you all day. I know we can't <laughs> do that, but you really have a remarkable career and you're incredibly inspirational. There are like two things I want to end on. One, I know you have children you're in leadership, you're doing these very big surgeries, you're pushing science forward, you have a lab. How do you balance it all? Is it, you still love it? Like, how do you, how do you answer that? How do you make that work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's never really balanced. You know, I don't think of it as balance. I, on any given day, I have to choose a priority. And some days it may be my family. Some days it's getting the grant finished or getting the manuscript finished. Some mm-hmm. days it's an important meeting I have to do administratively and my family and, and my lab is going to have to take a backseat for that particular day or that particular hour. So on any, any given day, I try to choose what's most important, understanding that over the hopefully over the whole spectrum of my life, I will 
have evened out about how much time I'm spending with my family versus work. Mm. My daughter is 26 and my son is 25. Okay, so they're they're older. And they're older. Yeah. Um, but when my daughter went off to college, she graduated from Cal Berkeley. My son graduated from College of Idaho. When Janelle went off to college, uh, I asked her, I said, I need you to do, I sort of did a three six, like, I need an evaluation. How was I as a mom? You know, I love that. Three sixty. I'm the kid. You know, I do okay. Like you're yeah. going off to college, you're on your That's computer. That's dangerous. You know? too. I know. I'm so nervous. <laughs> but I really wanted to know from her perspective if I had really let her down because yeah. there were many nights, as you know, are many volleyball games. She's a professional volleyball player. Oh now. my goodness! But many volleyball games I miss. Many mm. uh, she used to play basketball that I miss. And my son, I missed a lot of his soccer games and his lacrosse mm. games just because I was on call in the nature of what mm. I did. I wasn't home for dinner every single night because just of what I was working on and spending twelve to fourteen hours in the hospital. And I had carved out a little bit of time when they were in high school to pick them up. So I shifted my hours a little bit so that I could go pick them up from school uh, at 3.30 and then go back to work when they were doing their homework. But in general, I didn't spend as much time with them as a stay-at-home mom, for sure. Right. And so I said, how was I? She's like, mom, you did great. She's like, she's like, you're a surgeon. She said, my mom is a pediatric cancer surgeon. Mm. You know, so that pride for her was important. And she said... You weren't there for every game, but you made all my important games. You made all my championship games and, you know, I'm good. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. That's <laughs> I awesome. didn't totally fail as mom. That's probably the most stressful 360 <laughs> you've ever right, had. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> that's great. I mean, I so. think that's the reality we all face. Um, my kid, my, my daughters are teenagers, so I would not ask for a 360 right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not now. We got to wait till they're older. But there are, like, right. Yeah. It's not, it's a lot of work and you've yeah. got to, it's like you said, it's balance is probably not the right word there, but um, mm -hmm. you certainly can make it work. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I always like to end on this advice you give to young people, whether they're going into surgery or something entirely different. Mm -hmm. Like you've met a lot of things in your life. Any advice you give to people? Um, absolutely. I think in anything you're doing, be focused and persistent about what your goals are and don't let people talk you out of it. People are going to be resistant to anything new in general or if not resistant, very skeptical of its success. And you just have to keep pushing on and find someone who's going to be in your corner. You'll find at least one person, if not several, who will say, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. You should do that. And you'll also find a lot who will say you can, mm -hmm. but um, stick with the ones who support you. Find someone who you can have in your corner that you can talk to and that can help you along and getting to your goal and just don't give up. That's fantastic. I, this has been a great conversation and it's been really exciting for me to meet you and I really look forward to what you do in the future because oh, I know it's going to be great. Okay, wonderful. Oh, thank, thank you so much. All right. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous... Rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library 
for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at WISC Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. Welcome.